reading our passage this week, I was transported back 28 years to when Mark and I were first married. Like many, oh right, oh yes, well okay. <laughs> like many, we struggled with control as we figured out how it was that we were going to trust one another. One day we had a fight about something that Mark did or said that was hurtful. Although we were more culpable, I was certain I was the more injured party. Or so I thought. Of course, it was so important at the time, but I can't even recall what it was about. Here is what I remember most about it. We said our apologies and tried to get our hearts to a place of being clear again. Mark was very sorry and asked if we were good, to which I replied quite coldly, the forgiveness transaction has occurred. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Yeah. No, I said this because I knew I had to forgive him, but I didn't really want to. My heart was not in it. I didn't want to be vulnerable or open up to that guy ever again. I was done. I was just going through the motions because I was mad and hurt and wanted to stay that way a little bit longer. Ever been there? Uh, Yeah. Of course you have. You know it can take a while to get back to normal when we have a fight with someone. There we were. Mark was being all nice and extending the olive branch. We would all agree that Mark is actually nicer than I am. And I was like, no way. It's hard to explain what it takes for the walls to come down in order for us to have connection again with someone, in order for true forgiveness and reconciliation to occur, the walls have to be lowered. Our passage today is about the forgiveness transaction that every single person who has ever lived on the planet needs to grapple with God about. The author is telling us in vivid detail how forgiveness was obtained in the first covenant with the original recipients of this letter would have completely understood. This is a system that they are thinking of returning to. So the author is contrasting in vivid detail this system to what Jesus offers. Last week, we dove into the reality of the covenant, which gave a richer awareness of God's agreement with his people. And today, our passage gives a fullness of what forgiveness is like in the kingdom of God that our Savior has ushered in. Christians get such a clearer picture of the gospel when we examine pieces of the former sacrificial system. What's being communicated here is how vital forgiveness is to God. The need for cleansing and restored relationship has always been central to God's heart and our connection with him. So as we look at the contrast of the old and new covenant, we will see that the external nature of the sacrificial system made it easier for humans to just go through the motion of the ritual. But Jesus brings us directly to God face to face, and we are responsible to be present, as present as we can be, before our holy, majestic, and gracious God. So this is God's word from Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. It's in your bulletin, the NRSV. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, 
and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was constructed, the first one in which there were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of presence, which is called the holy place. Beyond the second curtain was a tent called the holy of holies. In it stood the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides which, of, with gold, in which there were a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. But only the high priest goes into the second, and he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. This is the symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been defiled, so that their flesh is purified, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? O Heavenly Father, through weak human words, give us grace to hear your true and living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the purpose of this passage is that the updated covenant with Jesus gives us greater opportunity to know God. Why? Because it bridges the divides that occur between us, which the law of the covenant, although remarkable for what it offered, could not do. So here the author is setting up a contrast of the forgiveness transaction and how it used to occur and the new way that Jesus brings. So we're going to look at three brief reasons why Jesus's way is superior and why this matters for us today. The first reason why Jesus' way is greater is because the place of his offering is heaven, not earth. The first 10 verses of this chapter are simply a description of the tabernacle, which we find in Exodus 25. Notice how the author is not focusing on the temple of their own era, but keeping with their practice of drawing straight from scripture found in the Old Covenant. The tabernacle, which means dwelling, was the portable sanctuary where Yahweh resided. It was made from detailed plans by the Israelites that God gave to Moses and served until Solomon's temple was built much later. A few years ago, a replica of the tabernacle was brought to Santa Barbara. Did any of you see it? By the Samandal family, and it was a very moving experience of what it was like. We see here that there are two rooms. The first was a holy room, 
and it was a flat roof uh, tent that was about 15 by 45 feet. And priests would enter into the first curtain where they would carry out their daily functions. Inside there was a lamp, a table, and the bread of presence, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel that were made fresh each Sabbath. The second room was the Holy of Holies, a space that was only entered into once a year on the Day of Atonement. And behind this second curtain was the actual dwelling place of Yahweh, whose presence rested between winged angelic statues on a gold-covered wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant. From ancient writings, we know that the Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark, but this author tells us that inside the Ark also is the jar of manna, and Aaron's staff. We catch a glimpse of the glory that was in the tabernacle. And it's interesting to think about that although the author believes that Jesus has brought a new and a better way, there is still awe and reverence here in these words. We think about all of the ministry that happened in the tabernacle, all of the blood that was spilled, all of the ways that the priests dedicated their lives to honoring God and honoring the people, trying to keep the people close to Yahweh because that's what Yahweh wanted. These verses remind us how God cared so much about this space that was a reflection of his glory. And when we read this, it is evident that forgiveness is the serious business of heaven. God is holy and worship in the tabernacle was sacred. When Jesus came, the dwelling place of God switched from a building to the hearts of those who believed in him. And this is Ascension Sunday, and we celebrate how Jesus went to heaven 40 days after the resurrection. Last year, we talked about how the ascension is a hinge that connects together the ministry of Jesus in the gospel and the church age, the age of the Holy Spirit. The writer here is reminding the listeners how the heavenly sanctuary is more real than the worship spaces we have here. Verse 11 says there's a greater, there's a more perfect tent that is not made with hands. If earthly worship in the tabernacle with all of the gold and all of the priceless artifacts of God's presence is so important and beautiful, think about what heaven must be like. We who are so entrenched on earth, who long for a glimpse of God or for a refreshing of his spirit, have to be reminded of the triumphant worship that is going on in the heavenly realms. This passage reminds us that we cannot escape the truth that God's holiness is the reason why we worship. The Hebrew word for holy means to be marked off to be withdrawn from common and ordinary use. The tabernacle celebrated the exalted, magnificent, and perfect God who made covenant with a specific group of people. And as part of their agreement, they were to recognize his moral perfection, his goodness, his absolute pure love and justice and otherness. That God was other than they themselves or any other people or any other deities all around them. Remember that the author called the sanctuary on earth a sketch and a shadow of what is to come. 
The reality of what the sanctuary is meant to be in heaven far surpasses anything we know here. The author says it's not of this creation, meaning it is out of this world. We can't even imagine it. Listen to what John says when he got to see the true realm of God recorded in Revelation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever day and night they never stop saying holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was who is who is to come there is one perfect sanctuary always full of god's glory from which our savior ministers to the tabernacle of our hearts. Amen. What else Jesus brings that is superior to the old covenant way? He brings true connection that God longs to have with his children. No matter the form, old or new, the Lord wants people to know him. The Lord wants to be connected with us. But in the old covenant, there was always an intermediary between the people and God. No one except the priests were allowed into the place of the Lord's presence. And in great love, Jesus takes that barrier away. When we read Leviticus, we see how there was an abundance of worship ritual that needed to be followed faithfully. It's exhausting to read it. And the point of this was so the people would stay holy because God is holy. And that was true. That was the case for many of them. But it was also true that people began to take the rituals as more sacred than God himself. We see this throughout the pages of the Old Covenant where the people replaced worshiping God with following rules, their own rules sometimes. And when Jesus comes, he's vocal about calling out hypocrisy and legalism and the burden placed on regular people. Some of the people who displayed the most faith in God were not who were expected. So this is something for us to think about. Because worship is meant to connect us to the living God. Through prayer and word and singing, sharing. God is powerfully with us through the sacrifice of Jesus in worship, there is healing and life. Gathered together with other believers, the Holy Spirit meets us. We find encouragement and conviction. We find a lifting of burdens and peace. Think about how many people have experienced a call to ministry in a church service. One of our new pastors uh, of the conference, we just had conference this last weekend, one of the pastors talked about how she went to UC Santa Barbara and she was just longing to find a free Methodist church. She was struggling in her life. There was a lot going on. We didn't know her. Her name's Kanisha. She took a bus to get her. I think it took her an hour and like a half from Ivy, of course, right? I did that too. She came into our church service and she heard God clearly tell her, it's time for you to go home. You need to go home. 
We thank God for the ways that he speaks to us in worship. She heard that word. She went home. We didn't even know she'd been here. We'd met her, but we didn't know her. And now she's a pastor in the Free Methodist Church <laughs> with Pastor Charles. Worship is where our hearts can be fully attuned to the voice of the Savior. But we too can find meaningful forms of ritual and see them as obligation. We can see the forms of worship as the sole point of worship. We can come to church finding it perfunctory or devoid of meaning. In those moments, we can blame the fact that we think that it's boring or we don't like the music or the tradition is too familiar. The truth is that we ourselves bring ourselves to worship and we ourselves bring our attitudes, both good and bad, in a time that is meant to focus on God. The Israelites in the time of the tabernacle or even in the days of Jesus's ministry had a much harder time connecting with God because of all of the, the detachment that was built into the worship. We have complete access to the Lord. We have no excuse to miss his truth or experience his grace. The author here is reminding the listeners that God made a new way through Jesus to not rely on anything that does not lead us to life. This is a good word for us, church. Let's keep our connection with God fresh and vibrant, being mindful of our part that we play when we come into worship. And as we do, he will refresh our souls as we meet with him. The last way Jesus is superior to the former system is how he brings full cleansing, which can now purify the conscience from dead works. This is repeated twice in this passage. When a priest offered a sacrifice on behalf of someone, there wasn't the full assurance of the Holy Spirit for the person being forgiven, which we now have. In other words, a person might not feel as though the forgiveness transaction was completed. They might be hoping that God forgave them, but maybe they're unsure. Another difference that Jesus brings is, is that there doesn't have to be a delay in forgiveness. No longer does there have to be a lag of going to the temple and talking to the priest and buying the animal or waiting once a year for the full cleansing of all of the things that we meant to do but didn't do and all the things we did that we didn't mean to do. We're going to talk more about the blood next week, but consider again how Jesus is the holy priest who enters into the holy of holies, tearing the curtain down, becoming the sacrifice for all time. Jesus forgives our past sins and gives us power to live godly lives into the future. He not only pays with his body to redeem us, we are enabled to live in holiness every day, transformed into his likeness. How do you know that you're forgiven? How do you know? As a pastor, people often come to me and they say, I just, God can't forgive me for this thing I did. I can't forgive myself. They live with the shame and the burden and the consequences of their actions as if it just happened yesterday and maybe it's been years. I talk with others who cannot forgive or even consider forgiving somebody who has wronged them. They live with resentment and hatred. 
I know it's not easy to let go of pain. This passage is one of the most vivid in all of scripture about what forgiveness looks like and how complete it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. How much the perfect lamb of God who offered himself as a sacrifice is able to bring us resounding new life. Living with a lack of forgiveness has consequences for our souls, for our actions, for our relationships. It causes us in a way to continue acting in a hurtful way to others. It, it, there's a barrier then with us and with the Lord. Hard-heartedness affects our worship. Is there a place in your life where God is asking you to trust him? Not another person, not an entity, not the church, him. In a place that you just haven't been able to let go. Christ's forgiveness is for you. It's for those who have wronged you. It's complete. It's, it's ultimate. Jesus had a lot to say about forgiveness. Teaching it as well as making it possible. It's central. It's central to everything he, he says. It's central in the Lord's prayer. He told us if we didn't forgive others that the Father wouldn't forgive us. He implied that there's no limit to our forgiveness. We're to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, turn the other cheek. God forgives us because of his love for us. If we're in worship and we're bringing an offering and we remember that we have a grudge against our brother and sister, we're supposed to go. God doesn't want our offering before our heart is right with our brother and sister. Make it right, he says, and then come back and worship me. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. Give mercy freely to others because you have freely been given the mercy that you needed. On the cross. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus taught and modeled grace for those who did not deserve it. That's all of us. He spoke truth to those who were judging and hurting others. He told religious leaders to stop it, to stop making people's lives harder with all the rules. He called out those who were hypocritical and self-righteous, and he brought a permanent fix to a system God had meant to bring life, but was broken and needed new components. The author ends his, uh, their idea in verse 14 by reminding us that the point of forgiveness is purification. It's holiness so that we can worship the living God in freedom. Jesus brings us face to face with the almighty God in a way that was never possible before. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot rely on any other process besides what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We cannot make up how we are forgiven. We cannot soften our own hearts. There's no need for us to live in constant blame and constant shame. Jesus has come to lead us into the throne room of God's presence. And when that happens, God never looks at us with coldness and says, the forgiveness transaction is complete. <laughs> never. 
He wraps us up in his love. He holds us close. He runs to get us even before we even make it to his side. God's forgiveness is for you and for me and for everyone in the world who needs it. It's the serious business of heaven. As God's people, forgiveness needs to be ours as well. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.